Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies podcast series. I'm your host, Amanda Jean Swain, at the University of California, Irvine. Today, we'll be talking with Yanni Katsonyas about his 2014 book, States of Obligation, Taxes and Citizenship in the Russian Empire and the Early Soviet Republic, published by University of Toronto Press. I have to admit that I was quite intimidated by a book on taxes in Imperial Russia, But States of Obligation received the Ed Ed A. Hewitt Book Prize for Outstanding Publication on the Political Economy of Russia, Eurasia, and our East European Studies from the Association for Slavic, East European, and Eurasian Studies. So I decided to give it a try. I'm glad I did. This is a dense topic, which Yanni makes accessible through an engaging writing style. I am now convinced, as Yanni says in the first sentence of the introduction, Taxes are forms of rule and government, and by analyzing tax policies and implementation, we gain a deeper understanding of categories such as state, economy, and person. Welcome to New Books and Russian Studies, Yanni. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. As a more detailed introduction, I wonder if you would tell us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in Russia. Yes, I was born, um, I was raised in Greece. Um, in the 1970s mainly. That's when I came into more or less maturity, if we ever do that. And um, it was coming out of a dictatorship. It was going into a period of democracy, parliamentary democracy. And I came from a family of leftists of different sorts. And that included Marxists, that included fellow fellow travelers, and radical liberals, let's say, or socialists, non-Marxist socialists. But it was all the range on the left. And our conversations among our friends, with um, in the family, at the dinner table, all of these things were about politics, always. I mean, this was our, our life's blood. And um, I had always been interested in history. And um, at some point, the penny dropped. By that time, I was an undergraduate in Montreal, uh, working with a number of historians who were themselves Marxists, or very radical Marxists, uh, people like George Roudet and Jeffrey Adams, um, people who had been uh, blacklisted. And couldn't get jobs at most mainstream American or Canadian universities. So they ended up in these sort of working class commuter schools. And that's where I went to study history because the profs were so good. And um, somewhere along the way, I became interested in Russia. Um, And it it made sense because the conversation for me had always been about socialism, about the left and whatnot. And um, uh, Russia would be the perfect place to look at. And the main thing that I always found curious was how it was that socialism became associated with Russia per se, and how we all assumed that the gold standard of, um, of a modern socialist state had to be the Soviet Union. That meant full state ownership, uh, full planning, um, uh, very limited room for civil society, civil liberties. Um, and it was, I always had this healthy doubt about the Soviet Union. It wasn't shared by all of my friends and family. Um, I mean, for for many of them, the Soviet Union was this beacon, and you had to defend it no matter what, even if you weren't a communist. Um, But I I did have a healthy sense of doubt that there there was something odd 
that historically we came to associate socialism with with, uh, with Russia and the Soviet Union. And um, so it made sense to start to look into it and to start to study it, and I did. So knowing that I was going to do history, I switched from what I was originally doing, which was Scandinavian history, um, which is, I admit, not as exciting as Russia. And uh, I made the switch and started learning Russian. And I took Russian history courses. Uh, I had some really good instructors. And, um, and then from then on, I went into graduate study in London at the School of Slavonic Studies and then to Columbia University where I did my PhD. And I had some really, really good teachers along the way. My really good teachers were actually in Imperial Russia, uh, uh, strangely, and because the Soviet Union was originally what had attracted me. Uh, but as historians, the imperial historians were just fantastic, uh, particularly in, the, in, the, in, the, in those times. And they drew me further and further back. And they told me, point blank, that you know, if you really want to understand the Soviet Union, you have to begin with Imperial Russia. Now, this was something we sort of intuited. We couldn't quite say why it was a visit connection. We knew that one preceded the other. There had to be some sort of legacy. Um, but for the most part, the field was organized around this sharp division of 1917. So you either studied Imperial or you studied Soviet. I always had in mind to go back to Soviet, uh, but I was really taken with, with Imperial. And that's where I did my early work. And that's where I did my later work, too. Um, but I was curious about what it was about, um, about the legacy of Imperial Russia that carried into the Soviet Union and actually shaped what the Soviet Union became. Why it was this and not something else. And a number of times in the book, you admit that tax policies can seem dry at best. So what drew you to study taxation? Well, so, so there, there's a difference between um, the topics we study, which as researchers we have to be excited about. And I'm, I'm nerdy in that regard. I, I, I find these things enjoyable. I can read volumes and volumes of these things. And as I'm reading through them, I'm pulling out detail that I find significant. But the subject we study, meaning the, the, what we submerge our topics into, uh, is a different matter altogether. So I began to realize by reading mainly memoir literature and some passing references to taxation about how people underwent taxation, um, I began to understand that there was actually significant things going on, but they're shrouded in this arcane language of the tax code. Now, I don't wish this on anyone. Um, I would say that if you're interested in any period of history, at some point you should take a look at the tax codes or something to do with taxation because they are so formative. Uh, but I wouldn't say that everybody has to go look at taxes. That was me. And, and only me. Um, but out of the tax code, you know, going on about, you know, nakaz or ukaz, instruccia, um, the, the opinions of the Senate, the minority opinion of the State Council, and so on and so forth, coming through these things, these people were political economists for the most part. And increasingly, as we get to the end of the 19th century, contemporaries realized that taxes were really about governance. Now, if you begin to look at taxes as governance, you begin to say, okay, I can understand this scale of taxation. I can understand how this is evaluated. I can understand how we have this inventory of that kind of value and whatnot. And I did that. And you know, that was my homework. Uh, but what they're getting out of it is a sense of what, what is this polity as a whole? Uh, what is Russia? What is a modern state? And how do we define, in the first instance, the economy? Uh, because that's in the makings precisely in this period of time. And from the, the mid-19th century onward, that's when we get the sense of the economy and the national economy for the first time. And before that, it was considered something else altogether. Um, and on the other hand, it begins to redefine the population so that from a, a system of collectives who were collectively responsible for their obligations to the state, in this case taxes, uh, but it could be military service, um, uh, 
from a, from from a system of collective estates, more or less self-governing, faceless, uh, lacking in individuality, they begin to move toward a system which is based on individuals and a closer study of individuals. The more you study individuals, the more you bring them to being as individuals. So these two um, uh, sort of sort of it, it becomes this triad, an ongoing interaction between the state, which initiates and and passes measures. Um, the economy, which is brought into shape by a new statistical industry, which is mainly a tax industry, and um, and persons who are drawn into this system as participants for the first time, as individuals. And that's what we'll focus on today, these concepts of state, economy, and person. This is a dense book, and uh, if we were to... Uh, talk about all the um, items that I found interesting. We'd be here for hours, but uh, neither we nor our listeners probably have that much of an attention span. So we'll focus on some of these big ideas, and then I'll enc- I encourage the, our listeners to go back and read the book um, for these uh, d- details. Um, but before we start talking about these big concepts, I'd like to talk a little bit about the fiscal policymakers as drivers of a process that redesigned the concept of state economy and percent in Russia. And you mentioned already that um, these fiscal bureaucrats and the Russian government are, um, are creating a new kind of state, a new kind of relationship. But tell us more about who they were, because in a lot of ways they're behind the scenes, um, and yet they are the key players, particularly in the 19th century. Right. So the... Um uh, there's not really, as we understand it, an economics profession in the mid-19th century. There's not even a sense of economics, really, in the, in the mid-19th century. What I mean by that is that when somebody looked at what we would aggregate as the economy today, what they're actually looking at is a question of government, um, a question of one's relationship with the state, and that's a matter of state finances. And that's what they called it, государственные финансы, or государственные хозяйства, the management of state resources. Or... They might talk about trade and industry, which they also did, or they may talk about agriculture. But each of these things are different from their point of view. Uh, there are not many people, in fact, I can't think of anyone in the mid-19th century who is trying to bring all of this together in, and call it economics or economic activity. Uh, they, they didn't, actually. So what you really have is people coming from other branches of learning and uh, trying to bring it together into a coherent whole. The reason why they want to bring it together as a coherent whole um, is they want to be able to mobilize resources through the fiscal apparatus. So if you can begin to look at trade, industry, agriculture, commerce, finances, private banking finances, public finances, if you begin to aggregate all these things into one whole, then you can measure them consistently across the board and, and tax all of them. And this way you're increasing state revenue. You're increasing basically your tax base. But what you're also doing at the same time is bringing into being this entity which hadn't existed before, which is the economy. It's only by the 1890s that you get a sense of uh, the, the national economy, which in Russian is Narodnokhazyaistva. It's only in the 1890s. And that's Vita who propagates it. But before that, you don't have that term. So it's a misnomer, in other words, to go back to the 1850s and say, well, what is the Russian economy in the 1850s? Well, the, the Russian economy isn't in the 1850s, period. Uh, you can try to correct, extrapolate, you know, that you can do that. and there's, there's room for doing that. But historically speaking and strictly speaking, you can't do that because uh, they haven't brought it into being yet. They're not thinking that way. Most of Europe and the United States are not thinking in those terms either. It's really only in the 1830s, theoretically, that they begin to do it in Germany, 1840s and 1850s in France, okay, and Russia in the 1890s. Um, so it's a 19th century phenomenon. Uh, 
So the people brought in to administer the system, because they're not brought in from economics departments, because for the most part they don't exist, um, they're brought in from other branches of government, mainly jurisprudence, and here they studied mainly philosophy. So economists then are thinking people. Now, now let this soak in for a moment. Economists are thinking people. They are not plumbers. They are not quantitative types. They don't write in numbers. Uh, they don't do regression analysis. It's not only do they not have the techniques yet, uh, but more importantly, that's not what they're thinking about. These people are trying to think in terms of political economy in the original sense of the word, meaning if we were to look at the aggregate of everything taking place on Russian territory as a matter of production and trade and understand it as a political entity which coheres one way or another, then you have to apply it to a philosophy. This is why they read, for example, John Stuart Mill. This is why they read Adam Smith. This is why they began to really read people like Liszt, uh, Friedrich Liszt in Germany. And especially, this is why they began to read Hegel. The good, a goodly portion of the people I'm looking at are Hegelians. They've gone to the jurisprudence, jurisprudence faculties at the, at the Russian universities. They've traveled abroad, mainly to Germany, to study. And what do they learn in all of these places but Hegel? Now, Hegel, from their point of view, is a good way of looking at the sum total of um, the Russian polity, of the Russian empire. He's useful to them because this is a society of particularisms, um, local, family-oriented, caste-oriented, meaning the estates, the religions, and whatnot. And we recognize this, they say. You know, we can't get around the fact that we are different. And this is an accumulation of differences. Hegel recognizes this as well. Um, um, but as time goes by, and as they begin to think it through as a whole, they begin to use the other side of Hegel, which is to look in terms of the universal. Meaning, is there some way in some moment in which all of us belong to one whole? And that's the universalism. And because of the tools they have at their disposal, and, and here these are fiscal experts, they're brought into the government mainly to the Ministry of Finances. Uh, some of them, some of them are, are, are shot up, are spun off elsewhere. Um, they began to look at the fiscal apparatus as a way to mobilize people, not simply into one universal whole, but specifically into the state. And that's where the Hegel comes into it. Right? It's not just any universal, it's the state. And now why the state? Well, the state is neutral from their point of view. The state is, covers everything. The state encompasses all activities. The state doesn't discriminate. Theoretically, that's what an autocracy is supposed to be, but it doesn't discriminate. Everybody is equally worthless before the autocrat. Everybody is equally illegitimate before the autocrat. So when they encounter their first big problem, which is the tax exemption of the nobility and the clergy to some extent, they begin to mobilize all of the history and all of these records. Terribly boring. Don't look at them. Don't look at them. But, you know, the tax exemptions of Armenian sheep herders, the tax exemption of Jewish converts in that particular province, um, the tax privileges of the Cossacks of that Don region, but not the Kiev region, and so on and so on and so on. And they mobilize them all into one whole, and they say, listen, there's no consistency here because it's arbitrary. The autocrat gave you these privileges. Now, theoretically speaking, the autocrat is supposed to be equal before all of his helpless, illegitimate subjects. The only way we can have a real autocracy is if everybody is taxed in identical ways, all the way across the board. And this begins the process of using autocracy, um, which is to say an unlimited power, um, to use autocracy to begin to level the population, at least in terms of the way that it's being looked at, the way that it's being measured. 
uh, and they begin to find devices and forms of measurement that would apply to everybody regardless of where they live and how they were born and what their status is in the imperial order. So the fiscal practice, which really takes off sometime in the 1880s, it begins in the 1860s, but really in the 1880s, surprisingly during the counter-reforms, you know, the time of reaction, um, they began to mobilize the fiscal apparatus uh, for a political end, and they knew there was a political end. Now, it wasn't like in these later times they're saying, well, you know, um, we're fooling people into understanding uh, what they think is economics but is really political. Um, by the 1880s, 1890s, they're saying it flat on the pages, this is what we're accomplishing. Uh, we're creating a new kind of Russia. And I found that really interesting that um, this idea of equality before um, the autocrat, you know, we think of sort of equality before the law as a way of respecting the individual. But this was a, a, the flip side of that is the, you know, everyone's equal in the service of the state and in the service of the autocrat. So it really wasn't about um, sort of the respecting the individual. It was about putting the individual in these slots and um, as part of getting rid of these hierarchy of estate privileges. Um, and one of the things that you then say is that when they decide to, that they should start looking at taxation, um, not through these various um, um, uh, dispensations from the autocrat to different kinds of people, but more um, as a universal way of um, obtaining resources for the state that, the first thing that they really discovered was how inadequate the state apparatus was to do this, that they, they didn't know how to measure um, wealth. They didn't know how to get that information. They didn't know how to go about collecting it. So can you talk more about that and what what the weaknesses that were revealed and how they set about to address them? Yeah, that, that's a good question and a fascinating story uh, because the, the information is really probably the cornerstone of the narrative of any modern tax system, meaning what information can you gather and do you have at your disposal? Um, you know, and just to give you an aside, you know, if you look at um, state budgets, like the United States or Britain, for example, in the 1860, 1960s, um, when we started getting into the period of stagflation, the big critique uh, coming from um, the neoliberals was that, um, well, actually, in the self-critique coming from the Keynesians in the Johnson and Kennedy administrations, um, under Wilson and under Heath in Britain, the critique was that they had inadequate data to be able to properly manage the economy. Uh, so the problem of data and measurement is an ongoing one. Uh, so in Russia, uh, 1850s, 1860s, um, we begin from the point that there is no state budget, period. Um, they don't need a budget. Um, this is a system which is based on the management of certain state resources. One of them is the, 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 the money and men uh, collected from the localities. Uh, so that's taxes and military recruits. Um, it's adequate. It's adequate. It's enough for the state to get by. Uh, they can uh, mobilize enough resources to uh, uh, keep the peace, keep a standing army, pay the bureaucracy, and that's about it. But uh, revenues are coming into the different ministries, the different local treasuries and the provinces and the districts. Uh, it's corrupt and it's squandered and all that, but that's not the main problem. The main problem is that they don't have a picture of what it is that's coming in to pay for this state, the imperial state. But corruption, by the way, is, um, I think there's too much emphasis on corruption as, as, as in, in and of itself a problem. 
Um, uh, corruption is sort of like a given, it's an ongoing thing. The real problem is, it seems to me, um, uh, measurement and accountability right, for, for what kinds of monies are supposed to be coming in. So in the 1860s, uh, the Ministry of Finance begins for the first time to try to aggregate all the, inf or to begin with, aggregate the money itself and to create, for the first time, a real treasury. So is that all the money coming into the different ministries and they each had their own revenues would now be concentrated at least in the ledgers of the Ministry of Finances. And then from the Ministry of Finances would be disbursed uh, to the needs of the different ministries. Uh, that's the first time this happens. They begin to get a hold of the money, but haven't gotten a hold of the money, they begin to trace where that money is actually coming from. And that's where information comes in. Um, and they begin to realize that uh, the money coming in is, has two main problems. The first is that it's too little for the needs of a modern state. If we're to have a modern conscript army, if we're to invest in infrastructure which we need for military and economic reasons, um, the canals, the roads, the railways, and so on, um, then we need more money. That's, that's the first thing. Um, and the reason why we don't have enough money is because too few people are taxed. The people who are taxed are the poorest people rather than the wealthiest people, which, is, which nowadays makes no sense, but then did uh, because it's a matter of status. Um, you're taxed because you're of low status. And what was the term for somebody of low status in Russia? But that may apply to the Sosnovia, the taxable estates. Um, so it's the reverse of what it's supposed to be if you're interested actually in increasing your revenue. Um, this is the, the first problem. Um, the second problem is that there's no picture of what kinds of things are taxable across the empire as a whole. There's only a picture of certain things. You know, we know that the nobility owns certain estates. We don't know what happens within those estates. The nobility collects poll taxes, delivers some of it, never all of it. Um, we have uh, about a slight majority of peasants who are on state lands. They deliver some of their taxes, but never all of them. Um, and the reason why we can't actually insist on full payment of the taxes is because we don't know how much that subject to taxation can pay. So you could send in the army. Anna does this in the 18th century. Um, it periodically happens also under, um, even into the early 1890s with Vishnagradsky. They can send in the army, they can send in the police, they can beat people, uh, peasants for the most part, um, and they will get more money, but they don't know if they've sent this household into destitution. They simply don't know. Um, so the first job of the government um, in this reform period, and here we get to the 1860s in the urban areas and the 1880s in the rural areas, is to change the nature of what it is that's being taxed. We're no longer going to tax people simply because they're taxable, meaning it's a matter of status, without regard to what they can pay. We're going to start taxing things. Things. And for the most part, we mean, we mean uh, um, uh, immobile property, um, real estate. Real estate. So that means uh, agricultural land in the countryside. That means buildings, uh, factories, and so on in the urban areas. By taxing things, we're necessarily changing the conversation away from unequal taxation, your birth status in other words, and you begin to tax the things that anybody might own. And that way you introduce the idea of universalism into taxation. So technically speaking, um, the, the things being taxed are the subjects of taxation, no longer people, technically speaking. And one of the great quiet revolutions of the 1880s is to effect this transformation. 
um, that we've moved away from a taxation of things and now we're taxing uh, from a taxation of people and we're taxing things instead. The person paying the taxes is now actually not the subject of taxation. He or she is only the payer. Um, so this introduces the idea of what's called uh, objective taxation, by which they mean objects. Right? Right? Uh, objective taxation so it's on things but not people. Um, in the urban areas, this really takes off in the 1880s. And here you get the new industrial taxes, the Pramislovia Nalogia. Everyone knows about them, but if you begin to look at them, you begin to realize what it is that they're, they're trying to accomplish. And what they're trying to accomplish is to have a new measurement of, um, of economic activity and therefore a new kind of taxation. Mm -hmm. What they introduce in these taxes, in the urban commercial areas, what they introduce here um, is, first of all, um, things are being taxed. The, uh, an enterprise would have one kind of tax. It's, it's, the, it's a patent, um, meaning a license to exist. The kiosk, the deli on the corner, you pay a flat rate simply for your right to exist. That's one kind of tax. And that registers all properties, you know, regardless of the size. But then it has two other provisions to it, the same Pramislovian analogy. There's two other provisions to it, which are based on a new concept, which is income, the hood, the hood. Now, income is a new concept. This is, and I'd like to come back to income actually mm -hmm. in just a minute and talk more about the urban. Um, sorry to cut you off there, but okay. I, before we get into the um, this um, urban taxation, which is a really important part and, and, and particularly interesting, I just wanted to come back to these changes that are happening in the 19th century in terms of the concept of the state and that there is now an economy, they're beginning to think of the economy as separate from the state, and that they're, um, in a sense, creating a private sector, which um, didn't really exist before. Um, and you do talk about three kind of three ideas of the separ separation between the state and the polity that comes out of three different kinds of tax reforms. So I just wanted to talk a little bit more about this concept of the state separate and and how these state ref, uh, these tax reforms are displaying that, and then we'll actually move right into the the urban taxation. Okay. Well, so the the um, some of the thinking behind these new kinds of taxes beginning in the eighteen sixties, actually, and during the Great Reform, some of the thinking behind it had been free trade, liberal economics, Adam Smith onward, and. Um, the free trade thinking and laissez-faire thinking had been um, had really had its high point in Western Europe, Britain, to some extent France, Germany, parts of it, um, around the 1830s. And in Russia, it's the 1850s, so it's actually not that much later. So free trade thinking and laissez-faire thinking um, recognizes that there's a realm outside of the state. And it really does it for the first time. It doesn't assume the right of the state to be involved in daily economic life. And politically speaking, it doesn't recognize uh, the right of the state to be involved in anyone's life. And it, it creates, in other words, a sense of the private. The state will do better to allow this activity to flourish, to do well, to do poorly, to take risks and whatnot, allow this to flourish and to grow, and then capitalize on that private sector. So in the process of saying, let things go, it's also saying that there are these things outside the state. Right, so it's, it's an epistemological development. Um, so by saying, in other words, uh, 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 that we're, letting, we're, we're going to allow the private sector to develop, as Russians begin to do in the 1850s and 1860s during their free trade and laissez-faire moment, 
by saying they're going to love and let them go, they're saying they exist as a, as a separate entity. But in Western Europe and in Russia itself, this is paradoxical. It's paradoxical. It's not that clear, that straightforward. Because in order to bring this separate entity into being, it's also giving the state a better view of this separate entity. It begins to count it, quantify it, measure it, indirectly to begin with, and then more directly as time goes by. It begins to note, for example, the existence of so many buildings owned by so many people, um, uh, recognizing their separateness and their, their, to some extent their autonomies. Um, but then at the same time, uh, developing more and more intrusive and probing measurements in order to better understand this separate private sector. Um, uh, how many people are coming and going from a particular building? How many horses seem to come and go in a given day? How many loads of this enter? How many loads of that exit? They begin to calculate more and more, always saying that this is what they call external indicators. It's a term they borrow from France, and in Russian it's right? external indicators, meaning you're not entering into the property. But they're gathering more and more of this information. And over time, they begin to say... Um, it would be much better to simply tell people, to tell us, to declare to us, what is it that you're making so we can properly tax it. They give incentives to the taxpayers to do this. They say, you think you're being taxed unfairly, which is probably true, but we can't tax you fairly until you give us more information. Um, if you want, if you say that your barn burned down, well, itemize it. How did this affect your income in a given year? How did it affect your business in a given year? Um, so it becomes this process whereby this separate entity begins to cooperate with the state in order to provide more and more information and generate more and more information uh, in order to better tax it. Um, and it gives both sanctions and incentives for that private sector to participate in the process. That's where they get the sense of income. And that, I think, then is very important for understanding this, um, uh, the, the urban taxation and the commercial taxation that's happening um, that you were starting to talk about. And I thought, I, as you were transitioning into income, one of the things that was really useful in your um, book was this concept of, or this idea of wealth in motion, that they're trying, they're, they're taxing, instead of just taxing these the, the physical presence, you know, the building in which a business is located, they start to look at that those points in which wealth moves from sort of one place to another and that that's where they collect um, taxes. Um, and so this idea of wealth in motion, but it's also you start to have this conflict because once you've set up a private sector, then the the commercial sectors, the um, these businessmen start to feel like they have some privacy because they're um, they are the private sector. So, can you talk more about that now and jump back into that of this um, how the state was trying to continue to get more information where those tensions were with this um, now private sector and and this move towards taxing wealth in motion. So the. Um the idea of wealth in motion uh, was that it, it's right around the time of developing a sense of um, liquid capital. Uh, we're talking about ca capital in, in bonds, in shares, in commercial operations, things in other words that hadn't really been taxed in the past. It hadn't been taxed because there was the old physiocratic notion, which is still common across Europe, that wealth really comes from land, which technically is probably true if you look at it as wealth. But people are no longer rich or poor simply according to how much land they have. People are now rich and poor according to how much profit they've generated in a commercial operation. The big wealth, all the way through to the end of the 19th century, 
And that which is not properly taxed, given how big it is, is commercial capital and commercial wealth. So in order to be able to trace it, you can't simply say, okay, I'm going to stand here at this building and look at the wealth and estimate the wealth, or even enter the building and say, this is how much it makes. I have to be able to measure something different, which is the payments and receipts. Um, that's where the real money is. Um, income, uh, income generated by shares, income generated by profits, and so on and so forth. These things are not really fixed in any one location. This is capitalism. They're always on the move, and they're always moving across borders. So the old system, which is based on the land and on real estate, will no longer work. We're going to keep that one. We're going to keep property taxes. Um, but we have to have something new on top of that. In order to do this, um, uh, this is across Western Europe, and finally in the United States. In order to do this, and then, and then, and then in Russia itself. In order to do this, there's a recognition that you can't really intrude on the private sector, walk up to the person and say, how much are you worth? Um, first of all, the person isn't going to lie to you. Um, um, it's well understood. And then you're going to have court cases, you're going to have people arrested. It's sort of uncomfortable for everybody involved. And it's expensive, kiss them down. Um, we can reach that point later. In the meantime, what we really want to do is find some sort of dispassionate, distant way you know, from a distance to measure these movements. So here's where um, they begin to develop this concept of wealth in motion as income. It's not the actual building that we're taxing. It's what leaves and enters a building. It's not the actual bond or share that you have in a corporation that we're taxing. It's the interest generated from that share. It's not your bank account. It's the money generated by that bank account. So technically speaking, they can say, we're still preserving privacy because we haven't entered into that particular item of wealth. We haven't entered your house or anything. But once it leaves your household, once money leaves your hands and before it enters somebody else's hands, it's fair game because that's part of civil society. That, by the way, is Hegelian. But anyway, um, it's entered into this intermediate stage of civil society. There, you yourself agree to allow it to become public because you entered into a social transaction with somebody else. So we're not actually intruding on your privacy. You surrendered your privacy as soon as you became a social being. Um, at that moment, we can tap into it, identify it, stop it before it reaches the next point, and take our 5% from it as the treasury. Um, there's pushback. There's pushback. So in Britain, this was supposed to have been introduced with the income tax in 1842, uh, but it actually takes a while because the banks are protesting. They're, they're saying, well, why would people even put money in our accounts if we can? We then have to share the information about each of these people? Um, it's a matter of privacy, um, in Britain especially. Um, in France, to some extent, it's a matter of privacy. And privacy, by the way, is a concept that's just developing, really, in all of these places. <clears throat> and this is part of it. Um, there's some claim to economic confidentiality, meaning I actually entered into an agreement with that particular person, not society as a whole. There's some back and forth about that, about whether or not this information should be revealed. But for the most part, they lose the argument. They're overwhelmed by this notion that um, um, any transaction between separate individuals, private individuals, has necessarily become public. Plus the fact that the only reason why you can safely carry out these transactions is because you're being protected by the state. You have to pay the state at some point, to some extent. Um, so this is the ongoing back and forth. Um, in most countries, it's a matter of privacy. In Russia, it never really becomes that argument. It's a different argument. 
It's more about precedent, about historical traditions, about privileges. Um, there really isn't this, this strident, you know, sort of aggressive bourgeoisie standing for its own rights and trying to represent universal goods like privacy and freedom and whatnot. Uh, they tend to be the old merchants, um, dependent on the state, a little insular, don't really speak in terms of universal rights. They do speak about precedence. It comes to a head on Russia um, around the time of the revolution of 1905, when uh, merchants and bankers are brought in to consult about the introduction of the new income tax, um, more or less in line with what's happening in other countries. And the bankers and the merchants keep saying, um, uh, you know, traditionally we've never had to reveal information about our transactions. And the government keeps saying, you only exist because of the government. Um, particularly now, during the revolution of 1905, when the Cossacks are the only thing saving you from the mob. Right? So now of all times, you have to pay up. And, and that's about when the Russians lose the battle right? and surrender more or less this idea of confidentiality. They do begin to make you know, vague, vague things about, or vague arguments about privacy. Uh, that's overwhelmed by the notion that they, uh, a person had never really been private. A person had always been open to study and intrusion and information gathering from the state. There wasn't this contest between individual privacy and public personality. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite sentences in the book, which also demonstrates what it makes it such an engaging book to read, is the following. How all persons came to resemble corporations and how the living came to resemble the dead is a story worth telling. So tell us that story and... Um, and, and that gets more at this this emergence of an industry of information gathering that's so crucial to the modern fiscal system. Yeah. You know, that's one of my favorite parts, too. And I'm glad you brought it up. Um, it really is because it was it's part of the process which across Europe and the United States and Canada, and I think Australia, but I know less about Australia, um, it's part of a process whereby precedents were established to allow for universal income taxation. Um so the two precedents we're talking about here are the inheritance tax and the corporate tax. So in, in um, the, the problem faced by treasuries was that they did face this problem of either the precedent of confidentiality, as in Russia, or the right to privacy, which is emerging in places like France, Britain, and the United States. Just emerging. And... Um, there was a recognition, the legacy of laissez-faire, that the state should not intrude on all private affairs, that there is such a thing as private. So they couldn't directly go to entrepreneurs and say, give me your money or tell me how much you've made and I need to take a part of it. That'd be a violation of privacy or precedent. Um, so they go indirectly. And so the first thing they do is they set up um, um, inheritance taxes. So with inheritance taxes, they say, um, all right, living people have the right to privacy. Uh, it's an ongoing affair. It's your ongoing life. But a dead person doesn't have those rights because, after all, the person is dead. Now, we know that we can then take the estate of the dead person, um, which the British call, um, uh, I can't remember the exact term they use, but they call it an income tax, except that it's every 30 years. You know, with the, with the death of, the, of, the, of that person before the accession of the next heir, we're going to look at this income, see how it's changed over the course of 30 years, and then tax the increase. Um, that dead person is, theoretically speaking, uh, an economic person. Why? Um, it had expenses. 
Um, it had um, incomes. It had growth, it had investments, risk, gains, losses, and so on and so forth. You put all this information together and you get a profile of who this person was during life. And that's what we're taxing. Uh, so it is a person, theoretically speaking, um, but physically speaking, we all agree that the person's dead and no longer a person. Well, in Russia, this debate unfolds in the 1880s, um, as it had in so many other countries. And the nobility is there at the state council to argue against it. So the ability, the ability stands up, they said, we know where you're going with this. Said, what you really want to do is to establish a precedent for living persons by calling the dead person an economic person. Well, the treasurer says, never, we never do such a thing. We all know that a dead person and a living person are different things. Well, sure enough, by the 1890s, the, the treasury is, is using this as a precedent for taxing living people. Sure enough. Everyone knew this was going to happen. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. But everyone knew that this was a subterfuge. Well, also in the 1880s in Russia, but across Europe during the 19th century, there was another precedent, and that was uh, corporate law and corporations. So um, legally speaking, a corporation is a person, according to the emerging laws of the 19th century. Um, by the 1890s, we're calling this an economic, a juridical person, an economically, a juridical person for legal purposes, and an economic personality for economic purposes. It's a profile. Um, in the 1880s, um, having granted the right of corporations to be persons, the, uh, the corporations themselves are looking for limited liability. The government is looking for transparency. So a corporation, not being a real person, uh, cannot claim privacy. Um, on the contrary, because it's a public corporation, because it's a public entity, um, it has to publish its accounts every year for the shareholders to know what's going on. So by definition, it's exposed and transparent. By definition. In Russia, that's the law of um, 1885. By definition, a corporation is transparent. Insofar as it's transparent, we don't have to guess what the incomes and expenditures of that corporation was, what its profits were. We already know it. So we can tax it um, comprehensively in a way that we wouldn't tax others. More fairly, at the same time, without having to guess. Everything is public. Well, again, there's this debate in 1885 in the, in the state council, that final legislative body, which has to consider things before presenting them to the Tsar. And they said, we know what you're doing. We know what you're doing. You're saying that a juridical person can be taxed because it's not a real person, but you're going to use the transitive property to say that the juridical person is a person, and therefore persons are also liable to the same kinds of taxes. The state council, Bunge, absolutely not. We'd never do such a thing. Sure enough, that's exactly what they did. So by the, I think it was by 1906, uh, the new argument coming out of government circles in favor of individual uh, personal taxation on, an, on income, the argument being used was, well, it's not fair. If you have one kind of person, a corporation, paying taxes, and you're exempting another kind of person, they're both persons. Uh, so this was not only Russia, this is the United States as well. So in the United States, um, 1909, the corporate tax, uh, 1913, the income tax, the personal income tax. Uh, so these were the precedents that were used. What they're doing philosophically at the same time, and they knew they were doing this, um, what they're doing is they're trying to um, um, change the way we understand personhood, the very idea of personhood. They're trying to say, in other words, that um, people come into being um, as uh, compartments of economic activity. You can get, create a profile, in other words, which they call economic 
um, coming from the German uh, economic personality, you can create profiles of persons, um, which is the entire, the aggregate of who that person is based on incomes, expenditures, children, uh, parent support, um, uh, losses, gains, and so on and so forth. And this is actually a real person, um, um, this profile. Um, uh, but it's understood economically. And the difference between this person and early understandings of persons is that this one is fully transparent, fully inalienable, and can be fully and comprehensively taxed. Um, now, this goes beyond simply taxation. That goes to the notion that um, persons are malleable, uh, and persons are exist in relation to and within state power. Taking take to the extreme, in other words, it's a, it's a form of full assimilation. And that um, takes us to these commissions with the implementation of the um, personal income tax, which was um, based on self-assessments. Um, the, there are now commissions to review these self-assessments. And similarly to what we talked about earlier, that this was not about the rights of the individual. It was really about the, um, the rights of the state. These commissions are interesting because they're not functioning as representatives of the citizenry. Um, they're really part of the state ma state machinery and the mm -hmm. state surveillance mechanism. So, um, can you talk a little, just a little bit about how those functioned? Um, because I want to make sure we have enough time to talk about the peasants. Right. So the the, the commissions were uh, an institution that existed in Russia, but also existed in Germany, uh, Britain, I think some American states. And the idea behind them was that when you're introducing a new kind of tax measure. The best way to have a check on arbitrariness is to bring into these commissions, either by election or by appointment, to bring in, um, in Russian they're called prisutstia. Um, you bring in uh, people who would be liable for that same tax, and they would be able to comment on whether or not that particular person in that neighborhood is being taxed at an appropriate level. You can make for exemptions, you can make for increases, you can bring in information that was not there. Uh, originally, you can say, oh, I know this person suffered this loss and so on and so forth. So it made the process better, uh, but more importantly, it made the process legitimate because it had the subjects or citizens, depending on the country, brought into the process uh, to make it participatory. And this was a form of legitimacy. Now, it took different forms in different places. So is that in Britain, these commissions were elected. And they were meant to stand in opposition to state authority. They're a check on state power, in other words. Um, that's one ver version of it. In Germany and Russia, it's, it's quite different, which is to say that these are state institutions with a population brought into it in order to carry out state functions. So in the commission itself, uh, the people sitting there are carrying out state, uh, um, uh, state laws, um, but because of their very presence, those state laws become practice and legitimate. And part of the argument that I make is that legitimacy in a modern state isn't so much about government by consent or by elections. Legitimacy is about one or another form of participation, which could be elections, but isn't always. That's the one form of participation. The other one, um, which sort of implicates the population in state power and still does in places like the United States today, the other one is the... Um, the whole notion of the um, self-assessment. That's our, 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 our Form 1040 in the United States. We sit down once a year and beautifully fill out these forms. We provide information to the state. We are becoming, at that point, uh, state bureaucrats. Uh, we're carrying out bureaucratic functions. Um, 
and we're, we're providing this information so that the state can better assess who we are. But we ourselves are assessing ourselves. It's less important that we pay more or less tax. It's more important that we go through the ritual annually. Or we hire accountants. Yeah. Um, so that's the whole argument about the legitimacy of modern practices. Well, we've been talking about some pretty radical changes that were taking place in the 19th century in terms of um, the state and its relationship to the economy and persons and creating an economy and changing the way taxation is done. And despite all these changes, peasants at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, were still being taxed by apportionment. Yeah. So why why was this the case? Why um, were peasants not affected or these new ways of thinking applied to the um, the peasantry in Russia? And also you challenged the idea that um, peasants bore the brunt of imperial taxation. So can you talk mm -hmm. about um, peasants for a while? Okay, so, so the, the peasants had originally paid most of the taxes of the imperial state uh, all the way to the 1880s. Just about, all, just about all the taxes, the direct taxes of the imperial state came from peasants because they were the, the largest taxable class. It's a terrible system of taxation. It, it was, as you say, apportionment, which was the state would devise its bills once a year or once every 10 years, as the case may be, and say, we need this many rubles. We'll divide it by this many provinces, throw the bills out to the provinces, and wait for something to come back. So the problem wasn't so much that it was not enough. That was also a problem. Um, but it was completely arbitrary. Um, um, and that this was a very poor tax base anyway you did it. Um, it's not a money economy. If you're looking for rubles, in other words, which is what a modern state does, it looks for the cash, not just grain or manpower, um, then you need to understand uh, where is the money actually being generated. Peasants are not very good at generating money. They generate other things, but not money. It's not yet a cash economy. And they're poor. And it's controversial. By the 1880s, 1890s, we have the so-called agrarian question, uh, where everyone assumes that peasants are being overtaxed. In fact, they don't know if peasants are being overtaxed. They don't have the information to make the case. Um, and the way it usually worked was a bill would be would be divided up all the way down to the village. Um, and let's say a bill of 20 rubles reached this particular village. The peasants would get together and offer up nine, 12, as the case might be. Well, the police could then come and they say, well, this isn't the 20. Uh, don't you think you should make it 15? Which the peasants may or may not do. If somebody said, no, you really have to collect what we asked for this year, and it has to be 20, then the tax collector really doesn't know if that's asking too much. Um, there's no information to, to, to prove one way or the other uh, because there's no information gathering mechanism at the local level. There's no cadaster in Russia even, ever. So Bunge in the 1880s decided that if we're looking for cash, then the better way to go, even though morally we don't like it, but the better way to go is to move toward excise taxation. Uh, it's impersonal. It doesn't require to enter into villages and beat anybody. So is that as you go along and buy your tobacco and your alcohol or your tea, you'll pay a very, very small amount along the way. For the state, in the aggregate, it means a lot of money. And in fact, that's what the Russian state depends on for the most part. In terms of direct taxes, this isn't where the money is. The money is in the cities, by far. I mean, overwhelmingly, we know this. So we're going to take the land taxes, reduce them, um, which they do by 1900 or so. 
we have the redemption payments for the land that the peasants received at emancipation. Um, those are kept. Um, peasants, for the most part, don't pay the full amount. They go into arrears, but this has always been the case. The difference is that now the state um, has decided that that's not where its money is going to come from. So it reduces, reduces, reduces. The big change comes with the abolition of the redemption payments. It shows that the change from 1900 to 1906 is um, a reduction in the peasant tax bill of around 90%. 90%. We just wipe it all out. We're never going to get this money. Uh, we don't even need this money because our real money is coming from elsewhere. So this was the sort of gradual process whereby direct peasant taxation went down and down and down until it became more or less insignificant. And so the, the numbers that I bring out show that by 1913, um, peasants pay about 1% in direct taxes. They pay about 1% of the state budget in direct taxes. So it's a tiny, tiny amount. Now, that 1% is still generated by a terrible tax system. And, and this is part of the problem. The government didn't say we're going to correct the tax problem. They said we're going to reduce the tax problem. Um, so it's still apportionment for all practical purposes. Uh, it's still arbitrary. It still means not knowing what a peasant can pay. It still means not knowing in any given year what peasants are producing. It probably doesn't matter for the time being. Where it does begin to matter is from 1914 onward, when the state really does have this problem of revenue um, because of the war, uh, it's partly self-inflicted because of the abolition of vodka sales, which is where uh, the largest share of state income came from. And they don't have the mechanism to try to understand where we're going to get our food supplies also. Um, they just don't have the information. They never had. Um, so they begin to move toward requisitions, requisitions based not on knowledge of what a village is producing, but on what the state needs. That's the old imperial system of apportionment. Um, and then this escalates in the course of uh, 1917, short break in 1918, and then becomes full scale again in 1919 with the, um, the requisitions. And you end the book by following the trajectories of state economy and person across the 1917 divide. So can you tell us about the meanings um, that these concepts acquired under the Bolsheviks and how the Bolsheviks' policies and practices were um, a break with or continued imperial Russian fiscal policies and practices. Sure. So, so the, the immediate story is about taxes themselves. Taxes themselves are remarkably consistent in the 1920s with what had happened before 1914. Remarkably consistent. This should not come as a surprise. The people who drafted the laws were the same people who drafted the imperial laws. They recruited them back into the Soviet state. They served the Soviet state and drafted more or less the identical laws. Income taxation, land taxation, excess taxation, they put all these things back into place. Um, to some extent, they're doing it because um, they're serving uh, the Russian state, as far as they're concerned, in Soviet guise. Uh, but to some extent, they have a point of agreement with, um, with the Bolsheviks and the communists. The Bolsheviks rest on the idea of class. These experts don't, by any stretch. But the Bolsheviks also rest on the idea of citizenship, which means universality. It means uh, universal taxation. Everybody has to pay their fair share. That part is where they overlap with the old fiscal experts, because they also agree that this is about citizenship. So they're allowed to recreate the system, uh, partly because of agreement, actually a real agreement, about what the nature of the Soviet state is. And here what I'm urging our, our colleagues in the Soviet period to do is to rethink our emphasis on class to the exclusion of the idea of citizenship. 
um, the Soviet state, um, all the way through to 1991, put a heavy premium and at times heavier premium on the idea of a universal citizenship rather than class struggle and class differences. I would argue that after uh, World War II, that is the main point of the Soviet state, you know, universal belonging and universal obligation. And that's where you're going to find similar measures persisting. Well, this I really enjoyed uh, reading your book, and this has been an enjoyable conversation about your book. And there's still a lot more that we haven't talked about. I encourage our readers to, our listeners to go back and um, read States of Obligation. Uh, one thing that we didn't really get into today is the whole vodka monopoly and um, the, its role in the um, the Russian economy and state policies. And um, for those of you who think that take Tax policy might not be an interesting read. I'm here to tell you that it is. So, again, thank you so much for the book and for talking with us today. And I'd like to end by asking you what you're working on now. I'm still touring. I'm, what I'm really working on is my children. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, that's taking up most of my time. Uh, I'm working to get out of administrative responsibilities here. That's almost succeeding. Um, and by September, I think I'll be back to teaching. And... Um, I'm toying with the idea of working on the history of Russian banking, including the state bank, uh, because strangely it hasn't been done. I mean, the state bank. Um, uh, that's a big project. Uh, there's another one which is about uh, Russia in the Mediterranean, um, and particularly about the birth of um, Greek nationalism on Russian territory. There's some that has been done there. I'm wondering if there's more to be done. These are I'm toying with. Um, but uh, but my main preoccupation now is my children, all three of them. Well, we wish you the best with that. And we look forward to hopefully in the future reading um, a future book and having you again back on the New Books in Russian Studies podcast series. Yeah, thank and you, Amanda. I appreciate everything. You're so welcome. And for our listeners, in the meantime, we'll have another New Books in Russian Studies podcast next month. 